Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Samuel, chapter 15, verses 17 through 35. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. And Samuel said, has the, Lord, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better to sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. For I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me, that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. Return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. The word of the Lord. So a number of weeks ago, I was reading an online article uh, about a guy who was an athlete who struggled when he was in high school because from very earliest of ages, he wanted to be a quarterback. He studied the position. When, when, when sides got picked for teams, he always wanted to be quarterback. And eventually, when he made the varsity team, he just got fixated on really winning at that position. Until the, came, the day came when his coach pulled him aside after practice during his junior year and said, I don't think you're a quarterback. I think actually I want to move you to the defensive side of the ball as a defensive back. Well, of course, the kid was absolutely crushed and thought all of my dreams are shattered until he started practicing at the defensive back position. Because again, all of his life, he had learned what it was like to be a quarterback. He was figuring out what reads looked like, what the cues were. Uh, he knew how to look at the linebacker's eyes and see where they were going. And so suddenly, one practice, he began to realize that if I think the way a quarterback thinks, 
I actually can anticipate exactly where I'm supposed to be as a defensive person. The change was so dramatic over him that he ended up getting a scholarship to college on the defensive side rather than what he thought he wanted. Now look, educators will call that particular method of learning, learning by the opposite. See, in other words, if you really want to know something, oftentimes you really can't appreciate it until you've seen it from the point of view of the opposite. It's going to happen really in almost any field. If you want to be a better player, try coaching for a little while. Uh, if you want to improve yourself in the classroom, try being a teacher for a little while. If you want to be a better guard, learn how to play the post, on and on. Well, as we prepare to meet King David in next week's sermon, we need to realize that the Bible does its own learning by the opposite. In other words, you're not going to fully appreciate what King David is going to bring to that particular uh, time until you've seen one king fail. And that, I would argue, is the meaning of the life of King Saul. King Saul is the first official king and quite an amazing figure in Israel, but represents for us the first failed attempt at that nation to establish a monarchy. Look, Saul had a pretty rocky start to his role as king. If you go back in 1 Samuel chapter 8, you'll find that the people were the ones who were clamoring to the prophet Samuel to get a king. And it looks if you read it, I think mistakenly, like God kind of begrudgingly grants them to have a king in the first place. But that's actually wrong. If you go back to Genesis 17, when God is making the promise about what he's going to do through Abraham's offspring, one of the things he says is, and kings will come from you. So it's not like God was surprised that the Jewish people wanted a king. No, the problem with Saul is the heart of the king. It's Saul's heart that was his downfall. And while you know, Saul clearly had moments where it looked like he was going to turn things around, the base note of his life was completely fixated on himself. And the clues from it are really all in his life. And what we've got here in this particular passage that we just read is the culmination of all that in the beginning of his downfall. So in order to really appreciate it, I want to look at this under three particular headings. We need to see, first of all, Saul's disobedience. We want to see Saul's fixation. And then finally end with Saul's blasphemy. Let's start with that first one, his disobedience. Look, let's set the stage for what's come before that got us here. Back at the beginning of this chapter that we didn't have time to read all the way through, God is ready to execute judgment on an ancient Near Eastern people group that were known as the Amalekites. Ancient people who, when the Jews were coming out of Egypt, remember when they left Egypt at the great exodus? The Amalekites were the ones who came and attacked them on their way out. And so God says in verse 3 that it's time for justice. Here's what he says. He says, now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Listen to this. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Uh, whoa. <laughs> Uh, this is one of those moments where you're like, I think we have a problem. We certainly have a problem with where we are in modern times. <clears throat> and I've decided to deal with what honestly is a very complex problem for the next five minutes here. Because while it's not exactly germane to our discussion about Saul, it comes up so often in Old Testament stories that I thought we'd deal with it just very briefly. And the question is simply this. How in the world can Yahweh have his name attached to what appears to be a clear example of genocide. 
How can he do that? Why would he do that? So these people attacked you at your most vulnerable. Does that mean that you can go and wipe them all out? Maybe this is where that mean Old Testament God comes out, right? Well, look, the first thing that we need to do in dealing with that very difficult objection is to establish this. You have to keep from thinking that these ancient Near Eastern cultures were gentle, peace-loving lot who just want to be left alone and live their lives. No, we have more than ample evidence coming from that these outlier Canaanite people actually were engaged in all manner of wicked regular practices, religious practices. These practices would include things like human trafficking. It included things like ritual prostitution, even and often child sacrifices. Led one commentator to say this, he goes, this is not ethnic cleansing. This is ethical cleansing. And I realize for some people that's still not enough for them who struggle with like, why would God though tell them to do this? Why the children in particular? Well, and it reminded me of a conversation that I had, not that I have any intention of doing a full treatment of the ethics surrounding the death penalty this morning. Frankly, because honestly, I'm a little ambivalent about the death penalty issue myself, and so I don't know where exactly I land. But I remembered having a conversation back in the days of campus ministry with a particularly energetic and very bright student, by the way. And it really stuck with me about this conversation because he wanted to meet with me to talk about passages like this. And he said, look, I want to make clear my view. I don't think it's ever right for someone to take someone else's life just because they've taken someone else's. Why in the world would we add to the tragedy of one person's death by committing another? So in trying to simply continue the discussion going on, I tried to present to them an ethical situation. I said, look, imagine for a moment, God forbid, that there is a a shooter that walks into a school, walks into a classroom, and takes the lives of four or five students. The SWAT team is called to come in and neutralize the threat, of course. Well, when the first SWAT team member arrives at the classroom, he hears the gunman scream this. He says, I'm going to march through the school room by room, and I'm going to take out as many people as I can. So my question to this young student was, would the, would the SWAT team member be justified in using deadly force against that gunman or not? To which he replied, he said, well, of course, in order to protect the other children, that would seem justified. And I said, okay, good. I said, what it comes down to then is you and I do not disagree that deadly force is sometimes necessary. What we're talking about is degrees of retribution or when it would be appropriate or not. And very interesting, he, I remember what he said to me back. He goes, yeah, yeah. He goes, but how often do you get a gunman who just announces his intention before he begins? Like, how do you know how much damage they intend to do? Well, he was absolutely following my argument because here's the rub. You have an ancient Near Eastern people who for who knows how many generations have perpetuated these crimes against humanity in the name of their pagan religion. How many generations were there children who were killed because of these practices? How many mothers were traumatized by these kinds of acts? How many cultic prostitutes were enslaved and abused and raped through those practices? But here's the trick. The God of the universe can see the future. 
And he can look out through the corridors of time and see just how much suffering and wickedness there is in the potential that this ancient Near Eastern group has. Does it not then seem just for him to cut this group off from the face of the earth so that that endless pattern of abuse and, and, and cycles of endless pain are somehow stopped? I don't know how many people I convince with that particular argument. Maybe you find it compelling, maybe not. It doesn't matter. But maybe it'll give you something to think about. Because there are those, I was reading in some commentators that would not necessarily be considered orthodox, who were speculating that the reason why Saul is unwilling to execute these Amalekites is because he thought that it was an unjust command as well. Saul was acting righteously. I'm not going to do that. That's unethical for me to wipe everybody out. But that's actually not the point because the text tells us why it is that Saul did his little partial obedience that we read Samuel condemning in our verse tonight, this morning. He gives the reason in verse 21. He did, he did wipe most of them out, he said, but listen to what 21, but the people took the spoil, sheep and ox and the best things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Those three first words, in my opinion, are the excuse that Saul levels, but the people that's the key to unlocking our next point. But look, don't, don't, don't miss the reference here in the spiritual lesson that Samuel takes up and delivers as this very lyrical judgment against Saul because he sums it up by saying, look, behold, it is better to obey than to sacrifice. To obey is better than sacrifice. Samuel is simply pointing out to Saul that there is a direct link between your obedience to God and the allegiances of your heart, inextricably connected. Forget the ritual, sacrifice, the ritual of sacrificing and do what Yahweh commanded. But the question becomes, why can't Saul do that? And the answer is because his heart is fixated on something entirely different. Which brings me to the second point. And that is not just Saul's disobedience, but Saul's fixation. This is huge. Look, if you did a study throughout all of 1 Samuel and a little bit of 2 Samuel of Saul's life, you get all these clues as to what it is that's really driving him in life. And I think it actually started from the very first day of his kingship. So Samuel gets this word from the Lord that Saul is to be the next king. This happens in 1 Samuel 10, if you want to go back and read about this afternoon. That Saul is going to be the guy. So what he does is he calls this big, large ceremony. They're going to have a coronation, right? So they get all of the representatives from the tribes of Israel who meet in a national meeting in a city called Mizpah. So they're there. The tribes gather. We're ready to anoint Saul. There's just one problem. Where's Saul? <laughs> He's nowhere to be found at his own coronation. And so they're all looking around like, hey, we threw a big party. He's a no-show. What gives? So here's what it says in chapter 10, verse 21. So they inquired again of the Lord, is there a man still to come? In other words, the prophets looked up and said, maybe we got the wrong guy. Maybe it's not him. Look at what Yahweh says. The Lord said, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. What? <laughs> Why is Saul with the luggage? What's he doing there? You can say, well, I don't know. Maybe he was lost there. No, 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 no. The passage says he has hidden himself. Saul is hiding in the midst of his coronation. On his biggest day, he's absolutely terrified and runs from the whole thing. Hmm. Does it look like humility to you? I don't think it is for this very reason. Think about this for that. When was the last time, let's say at work, for instance, that you were put in charge of something that was huge? 
I'm talking like really big. Maybe, maybe you helped land an account that put you in charge of like 100 employees or something. Or maybe there was a moment in a, in a board meeting or a, uh, where, where you were in charge of telling all of these families the news about the, the progress of the company. Now look, you worked for it. You were glad you got it. But have you ever had that feeling on the inside when you finally get it and you're like, okay, so uh, I guess we're doing this now. And you get a little bit nervous. It's a little bit like the dog who's chasing the car. What exactly is that dog going to do with that car once he catches it? Some of us have caught that car, in other words, and we're kind of like, okay, all right, I got to take this seriously now. It's time for me not to be such a goof off. What is that inside of us that does that? Because I think that's what Saul's going through. I think the simple answer is this. It's fear. It's fear. Saul is afraid. Whenever we get to those moments of, of great exposure, our fear rises up. We fear embarrassment, right? You know, being in charge only means that there's more people that you can potentially be shown up by. We fear change. We don't like change because we like being in control. I like things being the way they were. So when change happens, it's like, <gasps> we fear exposure. We all have contradictions inside of our own souls that we don't want people to see. But the more exposure means those things could get out. We fear criticism. I mean, the truth of the matter is, being in charge just increases the number of people who are going to have all kinds of opinions about what you do. That's what my daddy used to say before he died. He was like, son, it's no fun to be in charge because there's fear to grapple with. So when you take all of these fears and you boil them down into their essence, what you find is there is a fixation on what others think about you. And if that allegiance inside your own heart goes unchallenged and unchecked, inevitably what happens is, is you have to obey it. That is, the output of your life is directly tied to the fixation of your heart. This is why Saul is in the baggage, right? This is why Saul only partially obeys God. And we'll get to the reason why it's more vivid later on. But look, in the very next chapter after this one, Brian's going to preach to us next week about how God actually passes over Saul and chooses King David instead. And it all centers around this time in chapter 18, verse 6, when uh, David comes home after winning a bunch of battles, and all the women are cheering David as he comes in. And they got this little chant where they're like, oh, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. And Saul loses it. He checks his brain at the door. He's done. He goes off the rails, and he basically decides he's going to kill David. He knows he's the one who's been chosen. He's going to kill him. Why? Because Saul's highest allegiance in his life is his kingship. And if God opposes him, Saul will oppose God because he loves his kingship so much. He was willing to obey God, sure, to an extent, right up until the time where basically you oppose my control as king. That's how you know it's an idol. Where, where do you put the conditions on your obedience to God? Because once you meet up to that, that thing is your real God. Saul sees David as a threat to his social capital, to his po popularity. And by the end, he's lost all control. He's chucking spears at David, trying to pin him against a wall. Look, here's the lesson, I think, from Saul's life in this section here. Whatever you pledge allegiance to in your heart is going to be your master. So much so that eventually it's not your choices that you're making, but the idols. What the Bible is saying to us is, is you cannot build your life on anything but God because every other idol is eventually going to become an addictive substance to you. 
So that when God tells us to avoid sin, he does so because he knows that whatever you make an idol of is going to kill you. It's ultimately going to consume you, exactly like it did Saul. And consume him it did, which leads me to my third point, and that is Saul's blasphemy. This is very serious. Let me just say very quickly, it doesn't end well for Saul. In verse 35, uh, it said this, uh, uh, Clay just read, And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Now think about this for a second. The role of a prophet, which is what Samuel was, was to deliver God's word, to give you God's perspective, to make God's prophetic pronouncements. In other words, from here on, from this part on, Saul has no more access to the truth. He's done. And the withdrawal of God's spirit on Saul would have some pretty unnerving effects on his life. So much so that by the time you get to chapter 19, Saul can't stop thinking about killing David. So much so that he finds out that David is hiding. And he's hiding in a school that Samuel set up for prophets, to teach them how to be prophets apparently, some seminary or whatever. And Saul hears that David is there, so he marches out to go kill him. But on the way, something Well, something as weird as it is bizarre and disturbing happens to Saul. Let me read it from uh, chapter 19, verse 18. And Saul went there to Naoth and Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. What? And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah, and he too stripped off his clothes, and he prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all night. What? The verse goes on to say, and that's why people say, is Saul among the prophets? Hmm. Look, if you need to understand this, Saul is a man who is kicking against God. The base note of his life is to resist him, is to resist him, especially when he starts pushing on the things that he wants. He's fighting against what God has plainly revealed to him. And at the very end of his tormented life, God in the most forceful way shows him, it doesn't matter how much you fight me, Saul, my word will never pass away. So by an act of force, the spirit falls upon Saul while his heart is raging against God and forces him to admit that it's true. Terrifying. Can't you just see him there sitting up all night, naked, sweating? There's madness that's taken over Saul. Look, the point is this. There is a point where the word of God ceases to be a blessing to you and becomes your tormentor. Because of its inevitability, it is forced upon Saul so that he finally has to acquiesce to God's will. Chapters later, Saul will actually commit suicide rather than face the indignity of losing his kingship to David. Of course he will, because that's the end of all idolatry. All idolatry seeks the destruction of the host. Because when you and I are cut off from the avenues of God's truth, we destroy ourselves. That's the essence of blasphemy. I think this is a terrifying story, the life of Saul. Because it means, well... Let's take ministry people. It means that you can have the ability to preach. You can be a great teacher. You can help people. But your heart can be far from him. And that's one of the reasons why when you want to know whether you are walking the path that God wants you to walk, you can't look at your gifts. 
You can't look at the position that you have attained, the status that you have achieved. You can't even look at the effect that your ministry has had on the lives of others. You can't look at any of that. Instead, you have to look and see whether your heart is with him. Where do I find my joys? Where are my allegiances in life? What circumstances cause the rising and the falling of my emotions? When am I the most satisfied? When am I the most depressed? When am I the most enraged? Can I start in my life and begin to trace the thread of my motivations back to its source? Because if that source is anything other than God himself, then I am on a road to spiritual self-destruction. It's the meaning of the life of Saul. Years ago, I heard Tim Keller put it this way. He said, look, the gospel, the gospel of Jesus is fundamentally a contradiction of your experience. You ever thought about this? (laughs) The gospel comes to you and says, look, I know that you feel like you're basically good and that you mean well, (laughs) but the truth of the matter is, I need to tell you, is that you're a wretched sinner. But it also says, I know you feel sort of torn down and like a condemned sinner, but you know, if you know God through Christ, you're actually more loved and accepted than you ever dare dream. The gospel is a contradiction of my experience. It overturns it. And what it's saying is, is that in the end, the word of God is the only safe thing to build your life upon because it's the only thing bigger than your whims and your idolatries. It's got to be where I, my favorite verses in the whole Bible, it's, going, it's on my top 10. It's 1 John 3, uh, verse 20. For whenever your heart condemns you, think about that. Whenever your heart condemns you, which is kind of a weird thing to talk about. You know that voice inside that rises up inside you and points its finger at you? Loser. Idiot. Whatever name we call ourselves inside our own mind. John says that even when your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart. See what he means? Because the gospel is a contradiction of your experience. The gospel is a willingness. The good news is a willingness to let the word of God contradict me. To cross my will, especially my own self-definition. Because in the end, the word of God is the only thing that stands. So Michaela Schifrin uh, has won just about every accolade in skiing that is possible to be won. And you know what? It's not good enough. Back in the 2018 Olympics, she won the gold in the giant slalom, but failed to platform in the slalom, the regular slalom, came in fourth, and it nearly destroyed her. Uh, Her performance idolatry, this article I was reading said, is so intense that it absolutely paralyzes her so that before a race, she can't stop vomiting. Gross. But in order to deal with her mental state, she started seeing a sports psychiatrist, and they began to help her with a mantra a phrase that she's supposed to say over and over again. And you can see it actually written on her ski gloves as she comes out of the gates. It says over there, I am. And the psychiatrist, she said, taught her that what she's supposed to say is to fill in that blank. I am strong. I am determined. I am present. But she says at the very end of the article, but the pressure's still too intense. I keep vomiting. Hmm. Well, little does she know, she's actually wearing God's name on her hands. You know, I am. Because in the end, the only thing that silences our idols and our nerves is knowing that I am. The only way to finish that sentence properly is to say, I am his. I belong to him. The true king, though, is not going to say that. King Saul, he had gloves on. If he had gloves on, it would say, I am the people's. What would your gloves say? What would it say on your gloves? I am 
what? To be honest with you, I don't know that there's that much light in this passage, and I apologize for that, except to note this. This is a lesson of learning by the opposite. And to see the darkness in King Saul's life is supposed to get us anticipating that there would be a king that would come later that would rule differently. <laughs> and interestingly enough, not because he's going to do everything right. Just wait. When we get to the end of this semester, you're going to find King David every bit as flawed as Saul. You know what the difference was? It was David's heart. David stuck close to God. That king would keep his heart stayed on God. And in so doing, he would become the great pointer to the ultimate king that would come and who would do everything exactly right. And by the way, he's standing around talking to the religious leaders of his day, this Jesus of Nazareth. And at one point he looks and he goes, hey, you know what? Before Abraham was, I am. He delivered the actual name. That's the king we're waiting for. And you want to know why? Because so that you and I, when we face the continual discouragement of our own failures, because whether you're Saul or David, you're still going to fail. We can meet that when our, when our hearts condemn us with hope. Because God is greater than our hearts. God is greater than the contradictions in my own soul. God is greater than my fears of people. God is safer than my attempts to maintain control over my life. God doesn't criticize. Jesus is not shaming me. Jesus is not embarrassing me. He doesn't change like we do. That's the real king. And if the life of Saul says anything to us, it says that's what we're hoping to long for. So come back next week and hear about that true king and his heart and what he's fixated on. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, lead us into it. Uh, the noise of that voice inside of us screams so loudly sometimes, and we need for you to break that by your spirit. We, don't want, we want to break the path of spiritual self-destruction, and it's, it's, it's only as far away as our repentance. And so here we are with our, uh, with our knees bowed, our hearts bent towards you saying, speak to us. Father, even in the lyrics of this closing hymn, may we sing something that's true in all of our own souls as we look to you and ask for you to be our king. Reign over us, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.